0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. Activity is not achievement. What we are doing is not how well we are doing. And that's what has to change. And I think if you can drive a framework around making that change happen, all of these problems will start to go away.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares a court decision on LinkedIn data scraping. I've got the story of the Ukrainian military using facial recognition software... Later in the show, my conversation with Paul Inella, he's CEO of a company called TDI, we're discussing risks to members of boards of directors. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com/slash-network-security-platform. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to cover this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So this story goes back
2: quite a ways to the early days of this podcast. Mm. Um, I got the article from a news source called CyberScoop. Yep. Uh, and the article is by Tanya Riley. So we covered this case probably back in 2020. Uh, it is Q Laboratories versus LinkedIn. Uh, if you'll recall, Hiq is an organization that scrapes data from publicly available LinkedIn profiles. Hmm. So they make a list for organizations of what are called keepers, people who they think are at risk of getting hired for better jobs. So it's kind of intel for an organization. Hmm. They scan LinkedIn profiles. So-and-so is very impressive. Maybe they're underpaid based on their academic credentials or work history. So they do that type of data analytics Hmm. uh, for organizations based off publicly available uh, LinkedIn profiles. okay so LinkedIn was not happy about this. They sent a cease and desist letter back in 2019 to highQ saying you can't do this. Uh, this is stealing our proprietary data and this puts our users' information at risk. Uh in turn, Q sued LinkedIn for a declarative judgment saying that this was OK. Hmm. I'm not going to get into the complicated procedural history except to say that eventually this made its way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kicked the case back down to the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, uh, which is located on the West Coast, saying, guys, we just had a decision on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Van Buren case. mm mm-hmm. Please reconsider the facts of this case in light of what we decided in Van Buren. Oh, I see. And if you'll recall with the Van Buren case, the court determined that it was not a CFAA violation to be in a part of a website where you had been maybe – you're there for the wrong reason, but you have access to be there in the first place. That mm-hmm. is not a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So, so you've been
1: case, previously authorized to look at something, and if you go and look at something, even if it's not the reason that you were originally authorized for, you're off the hook. Exactly. That was a much better way of explaining it <laughs> than, than my way. <laughs> Got uh, your back.
2: <laughs> the, way, the way the Supreme Court described it is sort of a gate up, gate down approach. Hmm. Uh, so, if the gate is up, and it's something that's not publicly available, but you hack into it. That was sort of the original purpose of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Mm-hmm. That is a violation of the law. Mm. If you have access to it and you get in a database or a system for the wrong reason, even if we are using it to stalk your ex-girlfriend, that is not a violation of the CFAA under the Supreme Court's interpretation. Hmm. So this case was kicked back down to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit panel— uh, decided that the Supreme Court's precedent in Van Buren meant that it had to decide the case in favor of HiQ Laboratories, hmm. uh, with the thinking that the gate was up here. Uh, there was no restrictions uh, on the information that Q was seeking to obtain because the data that they were scraping was publicly available. It was on pro- on profiles where a person hadn't altered the requisite settings to make their uh, information private for example i see so it was, it's like
1: putting up a billboard and and uh, but if i put up a billboard that says don't read this sign I don't have no legal recourse against people for reading the sign. Right. Whereas if somebody put a curtain over the billboard (laughs) and you went and pulled down the curtain, (laughs) yeah,
2: that would be trespass and and vandalism. And that's really the approach. It's a silly metaphor, but that is the approach the Supreme Court is taking. They're relying on what they see as the legislative history behind the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was about hacking. And it's more of a traditional understanding of being in a place where you have no right to be. It's it's being on somebody else's property even when a gate was up. Hmm. Now, where this gets complicated is what LinkedIn was was trying to argue in their proceedings is they wrote the cease and desist letter saying you cannot do this. Uh, they eventually revised their terms of service saying this is not available for data scraping. Hmm. So, what LinkedIn is saying is that was the gate. We put up the gate. Uh, we put up a gate saying queue cannot Obtain this data via scraping. We're not going to allow that practice on our service. What the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is saying here is that's not a gate up because the information itself is still publicly available. Hmm. If you want to protect information on your site, then you have to make it private, whether that's done by the user or whether that's done by LinkedIn through some of their own internal mechanisms uh, to block access to people's uh, publicly posted data, they can put up those gates, but they haven't done so. So you can't artificially construct a gate to block a certain entity from using your service just for that one individual purpose, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so they're taking the gate up, gate down concept extremely literally. Hmm. Uh, and as a result, HiQ is going to be able to continue to scrape data from LinkedIn. Uh, it's a very valuable service that they're providing. A lot of people... Want aggregated information on uh, LinkedIn profiles, so there was a lot of money at stake. Uh, there's certainly a lot of money at stake for LinkedIn too, because they have a proprietary interest in this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's at least conceivably, if people are getting aggregated data from LinkedIn, there's less of a chance that somebody's going to visit LinkedIn and look at people's profiles, see ads, et cetera, et cetera, pay for a premium service, that that type of thing. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how the Van Buren decision from the Supreme Court is applied uh, in a case uh, that dates to – at least the facts in the case date to prior to that Supreme Court decision. Hmm. Um, so very very interesting stuff. I don't think it's going to make it back to the Supreme Court. I think this case, uh, the way it was decided in the Ninth Circuit, conforms pretty closely to what the Supreme Court said in uh, the 6-3 to Van Buren decision.
1: Now help me understand here. Let's let's talk about uh, some some what some what ifs with uh, with this LinkedIn thing here. All right, lay it on me. <laughs> so uh, I want to compare two different scenarios here. One where I'm browsing around on LinkedIn and I do not have an account on LinkedIn. I'm just Joe Public off the street uh, looking at LinkedIn profiles. Right. So mm-hmm. theoretically, in that situation. I would not have agreed to any EULA. I would not have agreed in the process of signing up for a membership on this service, even if it's a free membership. Right. I've not agreed to anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that, or to what degree is that different from if I sign up for the service, agree to a EULA that may include uh, uh, prohibiting me from scraping, right? Um, Is there a difference there? So, this
2: gets into what's a very complicated procedural history. Basically, there was a dispute as to whether LinkedIn and HiQ actually entered into some type of contractual uh, agreement. Hmm. And not to get really into the weeds, but there was some presentation at a conference where HiQ informed LinkedIn uh, as to how they were using their service, and LinkedIn executives were in attendance. So, in other words, LinkedIn should have known that even within the confines of the EULA that HiQ purportedly agreed to, mm-hmm. there was sort of a general, if not formally signed, contractual agreement uh, that this type of data scraping was taking place. Mm. If that makes sense?
1: Yeah, it does. I, I guess to to extend this, uh, perhaps to the breaking point, what if I have a, a what if I'm LinkedIn? And even before anybody can look at anything publicly facing, I have a pop up that comes up and says, hey, all this stuff's publicly available, but if you want to go any farther than this, uh, the deal is no scraping. That potentially is a little
2: more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there would be that type of fair warning. Now, that might be what LinkedIn tries to do to get around this decision. Uh-huh. If you look at the rationale of the decision, I don't think that would necessarily solve the problem on LinkedIn's end. Mm. Uh, and I think it's, and I hate to sound repetitive here, but the gate is still up. It's still publicly available whether you agree to the EULA or not, And that's the determining factor, at least as it comes to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. I see. Now, there are other claims that could potentially be made, um, and we could see some common law contract claims, which is what LinkedIn tried to file against HiQ in in California. Uh, But ultimately, when it comes to crimes under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and preemption under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, so whether that federal law preempts any type of contractual uh, dispute at the state level, Mm. that's going to be determined by whether the information is publicly available. And I Mm -hmm. don't think a pop-up EULA is going to make a difference in terms of that particular question. Yeah, That's how the court is seeing it. They needed a place to draw a distinction, and they've drawn a distinction. And I think the distinction comes from their view of the purpose of the Computer Fraud uh, and Abuse Act, which was to prevent
1: hacking. I see. So Uh, it's really a spirit of the law ruling here. Exactly.
2: Now, this law was drafted in 1984. Uh, Computers, systems, networks were very different then than they are now. (laughs) Um, For people who don't like to rely on legislative history, I can completely understand why it would seem sort of ridiculous that there were, you know, this case was reading quotes from senators involved in that debate who have been dead now for thirty years, uh, <laughs> right? Which is maybe, you know, more constructive than debating what our founding fathers said at the constitutional convention, but,
1: <laughs> but only slightly so, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but right. this is the distinction
2: courts have tried to draw, and to be fair to the courts, they they have to draw a distinction somewhere, um, because as we saw in that Van Buren case if it's not gate up gate down then you get into a situation where somebody's violating their employment contract by going on facebook at work mm. facebook is something you can access if you have access to the internet there's no gate down mm-hmm. uh, unless your employer your organization has blocked facebook and you go around that block or whatever right uh, if it's publicly available to you under a a different interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, you could be criminally liable from going on Facebook uh, at work because you're violating the terms of service set by your employer. And I think the Supreme Court in the Van Buren case said that that's just not a practical approach and that doesn't comply with the spirit of the law in the first place. Hmm. And I think the Ninth Circuit is carrying on that spirit here uh, just in very different circumstances.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I, I, I it seems to me like that's, in my mind, that's a good way to go. It's a good interpretation. I, I, I'm i on board. Yeah. I
2: mean, <laughs> I think you have to draw a line somewhere, and this is the easily— you, you want to make it something that's justiciable. Right. And this makes it very justiciable, a word that I always have trouble uh, pronouncing. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you say that. <laughs> uh, it's one of those where if you were a district court or a trial court judge— And you have a case similar to this. Now you know exactly what to look for. Is there a gate up that prevents somebody from having access to this? Did they hack into it Mm -hmm. using some type of illegal means? Did they get onto somebody's online property Mm -hmm. that wasn't theirs that they did not have access to? Did they pick the lock or was the door open uh, and they could just see in uh, and they're obtaining information from what they could see from that open door? I think that's the distinction here.
1: Yeah. All right. That's interesting for sure. We'll have a link to that story uh, from CyberScoop in the show notes. Uh, My story this week comes from the Washington Post. This is an article written by Drew Harwell. uh, And this uh, is about um, the Ukrainian military uh, who, of course, are dealing with the Russian invasion. Um, They are using facial recognition software to scan the faces of dead Russian soldiers, and then they're contacting their mothers.
2: Yeah, this is a very dark story, yeah. um, but I think you capture it well. Uh, people are finding dead Russian soldiers soldiers in this armed conflict, um, taking pictures and using facial recognition from uh, a company, Clearview AI, that we've covered extensively on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very specific purpose why Ukrainian soldiers are doing this and it's sort of the purpose of psychological warfare. Right. You can traumatize family members of dead soldiers uh, by calling them and saying, using this facial recognition, we've realized that we recognize your son or your daughter on the battlefield, and they're dead. This is what's happening in this armed conflict. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of it is to weaken political support for the invasion among the Russian people. So it is a form of psychological warfare. What's interesting to me is that Clearview AI, uh, under its founder and CEO, are being very supportive. And in fact, they've held Zoom training sessions for members of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian armed forces on how to effectively use this facial recognition tool. Hmm. Uh, so I think they see this as an important use of Clearview AI's uh, capabilities. Um, they, they see no moral or ethical issue of, of taking this action. Other people who commented for this article obviously saw it differently, uh, mm-hmm. saying basically we might be sympathetic to uh, the Ukrainian side in this conflict, uh, but regardless of that fact, we need to be careful about using facial recognition to promote psychological warfare on the battlefield, that it could be a slippery slope and there could be dangerous consequences.
1: It strikes me that, I, you know, soldiers have worn dog tags you know, for decades. Right. Right. Uh, so how is this really different from that? I could come upon uh, a, a, a dead soldier, read their dog tags, you know, look it up and and call their mother based on that information. Uh, same effect in the end. Um, I could also see I could use Clearview AI, you know, through a pair of binoculars or a, a, a camera with a long lens, take a picture of a living soldier, call up the mother and say, I got your soldier dead to rights here. Yeah. Yeah. Or or just say he's dead, even if he's not. Right. You know, same sort of thing here. I mean, that, what do you think of either of those things that I just laid out there?
2: Well, the first scenario doesn't contemplate in situa- a situation where somebody's not wearing dog tags, maybe because they don't want themselves to be identified. And yeah. I'm not an expert in Russian military operations, yeah, and so I don't know how closely they're hewing to traditional warfighting practice of carrying these forms of identification, right? Ah, uh, so that's sort of the issue with your first hypothetical. There, I think yeah. the second one is a very serious issue. I mean, you could use psychological warfare. In a way where you're not actually telling somebody the truth. And certainly, what Clearview AI is doing here uh, through this technology is allowing something, allowing a Ukrainian soldier to exploit facial recognition to cause undue psychological trauma to somebody's family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is
1: that usually out of bounds in warfare? In other words, we're bringing non combatants into this who, these are civilians.
2: Well, we're not necessarily sure that they're civilians who are either taking the photos or— And I
1: mean the moms. The moms, yeah. Uh,
2: I'm not familiar enough with conventions of uh, this type of warfare to know whether this is customary. Yeah. I I do know that psychological warfare is traditionally disfavored, um, Mm. and at least under international laws of armed conflict, I think— I don't think it's looked favorably upon to bring in uh, non-combatants, uh, people's families. That sort of is about minimizing civilian casualties and the, and minimizing the war's impact on civilians. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much a psychological uh, and probably some of our listeners know about this better than we do, whether that contemplates some type of psychological impact. Um, so I'm not sure how out of bounds this practice is in terms of the rules of international conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly reasons to avoid psychological warfare, and I think some of the people quoted in this article are appropriately uh, raising questions about that. It's not a healthy practice. Um, it could further inflame tensions. Uh, it could further increase hostilities. It could have the opposite effect uh, as is intended, but... Uh, but i'm not sure how that plays into the laws of international armed conflict.
1: Mhm. Yeah, oh and i wonder how 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 will it inform the laws of international armed conflict going forward. Right, I mean i think this is a new frontier. I mean, this is the first
2: really on the ground kinetic war that we've seen in the era where both sides have access to modern technological tools. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been fighting armed conflicts over the past 20 years where there was an imbalance uh, in uh, the sides fighting these, these armed conflicts. We saw that in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and those types of places. Uh, but we're dealing with two relatively advanced countries here. I think maybe we underestimated the capabilities of the Ukrainian military, but we're seeing now that they actually, based on a, a lot of Western support, uh, have a, Pretty advanced set of military capabilities Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is something that is new to uh, the world of international armed conflict and so i'm wondering if the more we see this the more this will make it into the type of international agreements we've entered into um, controlling the conduct of uh, armed conflict
1: yeah yeah it's fascinating for sure all right. very
2: dark but very fascinating. Yeah,
1: I know it is. it's it's uh, it's just to to ponder you know where where we might be going with all of this. Uh, you, like you said, it's a it's a different world. All right. We will have a link to that uh, story in the show notes as well. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like us to consider for the show. You can email us. It's caveat at the dot com. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. Then I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Paul Inella. He is CEO of a company called TDI. Uh, they recently published a white paper where they were discussing some of the risks that board members have these days in the uh, constantly evolving world of uh, online and cyber policy. Here's my conversation with Paul Inella. Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's gone from. Pretty much an absence of the discussion of cybersecurity, particularly as it relates to strategic ob- objectives uh, in in board discussions and uh, all the way now to where getting closer to 50 percent of the Fortune 500 have cybersecurity as a strategic objective. Yet, I still think we've got uh, leagues to go before we're really there. Uh, you, you may be aware, but um, Senators Collins and King have been pushing for cyber requirements at the board level, and, and in, the, in the recent omnibus, it, it turns out there are some new requirements that will be imposed. I'm not entirely sure of the of the entire breadth of who's being governed by it, but we are seeing now, even at the legal uh, level, some requirements for board level understanding of cyber risk in an organization. The the problem that still really really lies, regardless of governance or mandate, is the fact that the boards don't quite understand what the cyber teams are saying and the cyber teams don't really understand how to talk to the board. And until that, that gets resolved, I think we have a real chasm to, to jump. Uh, and, and, and we've, we've put a significant amount of work on, on how do you put together a body of knowledge that can bridge that, that chasm? But, uh, we, we do have quite a bit of work to get there.
1: To what degree have boards relied on, you know, kind of having that specialist that, you know, this is this is the person, the the guy or gal on our board who knows cyber. And so we've checked that box. Is is that a thing that we saw happen? Not to enough of an extent. And really,
0: uh, I'd say in in only in some of the largest and most advanced organizations, uh, you, you know, I, I think governmental advisory bodies are a pretty good example of where that does occur uh, in term in the commercial space in the in the private sector, you're not seeing it to any real extent, uh, other than people who may have dealt with it, board members who may have dealt with it in other organizations they've served. For the most part, particularly for for the customers we we work with, we have CISOs who are typically reporting up to the board and uh, the CEO almost at the same time each and every time. But again. It's, there, there's, a, there's a number of obstacles to success in that that, that we've identified in the past that, that really haven't been rectified. So you'll have still to date CISOs who are copying and pasting from cyber tools and reporting out that last month we had 10,000 vulnerabilities and this month we have 5,000 vulnerabilities. And we in the space understand that contextually that means nothing. There's no capacity to act upon it. It's not the same as talking about financial reporting at the board level. If I go, I serve on a number of boards. And if I'm sitting in Singapore or I'm sitting in Tokyo or here in Washington, DC, and talking about the financial health of an organization, and somebody slides to me a PL statement or pro forma sales projections, we're all speaking the same language. We don't have that in cyber. If a board member says, I feel that we have a fiduciary and other responsibility to ensure the cyber health of our organization, show me that we're healthy. It's pretty rare that an organization can do so, and and that's a that's a big part of the problem.
1: Whose responsibility should it be to serve as that Rosetta Stone? You know, how much of this comes on, on getting your board up to speed with these terms, and how much of it is the the CISO being able to speak to them in a language they understand? I
0: think it's a combination of both. I I, I also think it, it's going to require a big paradigm shift. You know, part of we actually just wrote a white paper we're publishing this month on the topic, but part of the premise is cyber from an organizational perspective, meaning all of the C-suite and the board and shareholders have to buy in that, that cyber is as critical and interrelated to the success of an organization as any other resource or component. Meaning cyber has to be elevated to the highest level of the organization so that its impact is known. It's understood. It's measured and visually reported and managed. Until that happens, you can't hang the chalice on, on around the neck of of, of a siso and say it's your job to fix this. Number one, the budgets are out of whack. Right? We we last year spent twelve and a half percent on cyber more than the year before, and it just continues to rise. That's two hundred sixty billion dollars you know how much it cost us in cybercrime last year? Six trillion. We're basically spending 4% against this this six trillion nut, which means they're getting out of us 25 times what we're putting in. So now you want to ask a CISO, hey, report on our cyber health, but I'm not going to arm you to do so by neither elevating it to the level it needs to be or giving you the right budget to do so. It has to be a business-oriented shift. And until we look at, how to increase the value of an organization based upon how we treat cyber and align cyber to the to the business objectives that the board can understand it really is not going to change
1: you know we we've seen discussion that there've been some shifts when it comes to the insurance companies and what they're willing to provide and the the scrutiny that they're applying to organizations when I've been on boards, um, you know, one of the the key elements there has been that the board members have errors and omissions insurance to protect them. Is that an a, an area where we could see some, you know, a positive force here where the insurance companies are going to say, hey, we're not going to give you your E&O policy until you all are up to speed on this?
0: Yeah, I do think it'll help. It, it's definitely a topic of of conversation. In fact, based upon the omnibus uh, um, structure around better reporting and and um, and requirements for for board inclusivity of of cyber expertise the sec just put out recommendations and one of them was around ensuring board expertise exists uh, and part of that is and it's not finished but the recommendations are are to provide some protection against liability for board members with respect to bringing that expertise. Uh, to the organization. So I I do believe that providing some level of uh, some veil of protection is going to be critical to ensuring it. But I also believe that the onus doesn't have to be on the board to have that expertise. I think we can do a better job as organizations in articulating cyber health through a common lexicon and a common methodology where When seen multiple times, as with anything else that a board addresses, it will become more second nature. It'll become trusted.
1: How much has to happen in terms of of shifting the capabilities of the CISO? I'm thinking of communications, you know, but generally in my mind, most CISOs, you know, the primary thing they're not hired for is their ability to get up in front of a group of people and present, right? I mean, you know, uh, there are those who are quite good at it to their benefit, but is it possible that we see, uh, you know, that this, the CISO has a, a communication specialist whose job is to be able to translate this stuff?
0: Yeah, very, very much could be an answer to the solution. I would say if we were to arm organizations and the CISOs as the head of the cyber organization with, with the right framework for delivering an understanding of cyber health in an organization That they would be better armed. CISOs are required to brief the boards pretty much uniformly. So whether they're doing it in a certain manner that's completely different from organization to organization or in a uniform way doesn't really make a difference in terms of their ability to present. But what they're presenting can change. And I think that's where the big, that's where the big change in how organizations are handling cyber health and representing it needs to come. Uh, and, and I think there is a way there. We, we've, we've been doing this for 20 plus years as an organization in Intel Community Defense, civil and commercial companies around the globe. We've seen a lot from Fortune 10 boards to systems under the water and in space. And there is a, there is a complete uh, and uniform way which we could be running cyber programs better that would make all of this comms flow better. And it wouldn't require a communication specialist. It would simply mean that we're all speaking the same language and working towards the same metrics. And that that's the big, you know, we, we've kind of grouped from an organizational perspective, all of these inherent problems into, into, we call them the organizational obstacles to cyber success. And it really boils down to a misalignment and understanding of risk tolerance between the board and the security teams. It's disparity in technical understanding and industry terminology back to the lexicon. And it's a lack of meaningful and timely visibility into day to day cyber performance to kind of bring the whole thing home and make it abundantly clear. We're so heavily focused on activity. Am I compliant with X? How much did I spend on cyber? How many vulnerabilities do I, did I address? Activity is not achievement. What we are doing is not how well we are doing. And that's what has to change. And I think if you can drive a framework around making that change happen, all of these problems will start to go away.
1: Is it, in your estimation, that's what it's going to take by having a, a framework that everyone can agree on? I
0: do. I, From a personal standpoint, I, I started TDI over 20 years ago. And we have been predominantly a cybersecurity services company the whole time. And five years ago, I'm looking at a market of three and a half to four million openings soon. So a big workforce issue that we have, workforce gap that we have to close. And what we continue to notice as systemic inherent problems in organizations and decided that we need a tool that makes us more efficient, more automated and more economical if we're going to survive without the necessary workforce to do so. And so instead of building the 10,000 and first cyber tool that would be provide endpoint protection or the next silver bullet, we thought, you know what we need? We need an extensible platform for running a cyber program. And so all of that anecdotally to say, yeah, I sure do believe in it because I've spent millions as an organization building out a solution to address it. I think this is where the, the industry has to head. Every other engineering discipline has gone through its nascent stas- stages and, and gotten to a point where they realize there has to be a discipline and rigor in how we conduct our craft. Software engineering went through this as an example. We don't really have that in cyber engineering. The, the next CISO you call will be telling you what fire they are putting out on any given day but not how they're aligning their organization to the corporate strategy. And and that's that's the big hole.
2: All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting. I mean, I think this is something that members of boards of directors hadn't paid enough attention to in the past. Mm -hmm. And as I think came crystal clear in your interview, they were focusing on the wrong things. They were focusing on box checking and taking a certain finite number of actions in the name of cybersecurity rather than actually improving cybersecurity. Right. There's sort of the difference between uh, going through requisite trainings, using uh, best practices, using X number of tools, et cetera, versus actually solving the problem, which I think is an important distinction to make. And I think it it means that boards of directors are going to think have to think more dynamically uh, as we have a more uh, robust threat landscape.
1: You know, we've talked a lot about how uh, cyber insurance policies have changed a lot in the past year or so. You know, they've gotten more expensive, they cover fewer things, deductibles are higher. I wonder if that's, or, or I wonder if to what degree that is uh, seeping into errors and omissions policies for board members, right? Because I know a lot of, you know, you join a board, and one of the first things you ask is, you have uh, E and insurance, right? Right. I right? learned uh, in this interview, <laughs> by the way, that
2: you have been on boards of uh, directors. So you're yeah.
1: intimately aware uh, of these policies. Yeah, well, you have to protect yourself because you are on the line for those sorts of things. So it's, you know, a standard operating procedure. And any 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 board, uh, any organization worth worth their salt is going to invest in errors and omissions for their board members. So they're not going to get good board members, right? Right.
2: Uh, I mean, I think it's definitely going to seep in there because it, it – It's just another risk of liability layered on top of the other risks inherent in running a company, Mm -hmm. an
1: organization.
2: Um, So, yeah, it's going to have to be a part of that policy.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Paul Anella for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire.